I'm Adam Sutherland. I'm the director of Grisdale Arts, and I'm introducing Samra Mayanja's podcast, What Do We Really Mean by Community Empowerment? So the question for her was, how do we engage with communities? Looking at our history, her experience of the work we've been doing, and her own experience, and to some extent disillusionment with some of those processes. So I think I shared with her a longish history of thinking about and working with communities and not coming up with answers. We go across the globe interviewing Evelina Liang, a Hong Kong activist, to Colchester and the collision perhaps with an arts institution. It's a message of hope and potential and excitement about a future. So a real belief in a way forward. Once upon a time, in the year 2010, there were many sculptures that existed in a wildly over-visited forest in the district of Empty Lakes. People travelled far and wide with their fancy water boots to see the marvels of these objects made in stone and unsurprisingly wood. They also came to observe and see the stuff of these creatures, also known as contemporary artists, something about activating and reconceptualizing and transcending light in the darker corners of the forest and at times the local village of Coniston. Much of this activity was the handiwork of Grisdale, a group of angry teddy bears. When they first landed in the forest, they announced from the tops of trees that something more sinister than these forests had ever seen was on its way. Something political. People were stunned and dizzied by their own complaints. One angry teddy bear had even managed to piece together an entire poem comprised of complaints that had been lobbed at them. And one of them famously stated that if it's not risky change, it's probably not change, or something like this. But they didn't stop there. With honesty as their shield, the angry teddy bears of Grisdale zapped themselves out of the forest and onto a hill overlooking the empty lakes, far, far away from the forest and its grip. From here, they followed a new path to fill the empty lakes with art overflowing from the village. And then in the year 2011, they started helping with the renovation of a building called the Institute. The villagers' arms were linked as they swept, built, painted, tidied and organised the space. Hot with activity, the angry teddy bears slowly became cute teddy bears, dishing out compliments and making lunches with people in the village. It was all so lush. Until one day, the Council of Voices that ran the Institute sat down and decided that it was time to zap. But who was getting the zap this time? None but the cute teddy bears of Grisdale, who left with their stove and rode in hand, and off they went. Zap. Hi, I'm Samra Mayanja, a writer and artist, and this podcast... What Do We Really Mean by Community Empowerment is part of a series of podcasts commissioned by Grisdale Arts to explore specific parts of their future programme. So if you have a mo, check out the other podcasts in this series by White Pube, Juno Projects and LADC. So this podcast comes at a poignant moment for Grisdale. Their long-term road project has come to a premature end and now they're looking to the future. 
So this podcast is about power and art is folded in there somewhere. Journey with me, reflecting not quite knowing where we'll end up. And at the end of this, we'll be somewhere. Stay with it. Stay with me. For me, projects where we aim to make collectively with a kind of shared sense of responsibility, with singular flair acknowledged in all kinds of spaces, sometimes outside and sometimes inside, has been an education, perhaps with art as the change, connection, breaking and building and reforming of what we thought that we knew. For the past few months, I've had to step back from this way of making, though, due to fatigue, a, a sort of confusion about what it is that I'm doing and want to do, and giving myself space for reflection, rest and learning. The pandemic and the tremor of witnessing like waves, the killing of black people in America has made it difficult for me to focus because I want to grieve. I want to grieve for Ahmed Avery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And I want to grieve for those who we lost here to the pandemic, whose names include Mary Ajewa Jepong, Beli Mujinga, Josiane Zalma Ebonja Ekoli, and Kulisani Nkala. And I want to grieve for those we lost before, like Sarah Reed and Shukri Yahya Abdi. These realities have made it hard for the people I'd hoped to speak to to be able to do just that. But I hope this is simply another part of the long and necessary thread, a conversation that's happening. Whilst people protest in the street all over the globe, for now, this is my contribution. This podcast is a communing of voices, of ours, those who are here and those that are no longer with us, but are with us. We've lost a lot of people in this time, not simply to a virus, but to the negligence and abuse of those who scrape power from our stance as we rise and wear it tight to their backs. We see you. I thought a good place to start was to give a brief history of the Coniston Institute, the place that Grisdale had been zapped from. The Coniston Institute has had many lives and has seen many England since its establishment as Coniston Mechanics Institute and Literary Society in 1852. Then, without a physical home, its activities took place at an old school in the village and were sponsored by industrialists and philanthropists for the benefit of the working people in the village, many of whom worked in the copper mines, whose activities declined from the 1870s. However, the copper colour tints the fells whose bumps in the background frame the Coniston Institute as we know it now. Broadly speaking, the idea of the Institute and others like it, was to promote lifelong learning, continual personal development, and an updated training in the use of modern technologies. In 1872, John Ruskin moved to the area and loved what the Institute was doing. These probably weren't his exact words. But anyway, two years later, the old school building is demolished, and Ruskin pumps in his cash, fundraising cash, and painting cash into the new build project for the Institute to continue. They open up in 1878, and in the immediate years that followed, it hosted several spaces, activities and objects, including but not limited to a bathhouse, kitchen, library, reading room, artist studio, theatre, fossils, pictures 
and stuffed animals donated by Ruskin and Collingwood. But in 2011, with the Institute loss from these earlier activities, Grisdale was invited to help out with a community renovation of the place. So the question, what do we really mean by community empowerment, has a resonance in the Institute, as though earlier iterations of the question bark back in my mind. With 10 years of Tory cuts, 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 biopolicy and rhetoric aimed at marginalised folk. Charter flights, introduction of universal credit, building of megaprisons, academisation, rising tuition fees, introduction of zero-hour contracts and hostility towards migrants in the rental market, hospitals and schools at a minimum. The list continues. And if history is happening, what do we really mean by community empowerment? Is it simply a counter to the immediate crap or could it be something else? I think it's important to perhaps start with unpacking this word empowerment. Like, what do we actually mean by that specific word? Something about the term feels dated, feels stuck and invited from a place other than here. A time of pulling people up and out of oppressive, boring and harsh realities, as defined by the hands or arms, doing the pulling, and never those finding themselves now up and out. My little pocket dictionary's definition of empowerment uses words like authorization and giving power. Mm, bit icky. Who is authorizing who and who is giving power to who? Why did they have it in the first place and how did they get it? My most recent engagement with the word, however, isn't in the arts, but from a support service I volunteer at called Sarsville. In the training, the kind of guiding framework was introduced to us as the empowerment model, reminding us that although we may think in the moment that we have the exact solution for someone, we don't. But through holding space for a person to think through what they want or need and what they believe is best for themselves at that time, that in that process, people will be able to access themselves and the ways to be in the world that work best for them. We were taught to use methods like active listening, asking open questions, being encouraging and challenging widely accepted myths that serve only to degrade those who have been harmed. If someone is facing immediate risk, then there's a completely different process. But ultimately, this model has really forced me to shift the ways in which I support others, think about social relations and what I want for myself. OK, so if simply copied and pasted over the activities of socially engaged art practitioners, what happens? Briefly, I'll just explain. Socially engaged art practice to me has loads of different names and is a broad term used to define a wide range of artistic projects where perhaps the artist, designer, curator or so on make art from within or with a particular person or people as opposed to making it physically separate, although maybe it's possible to do that. The people, the social political relations between those people, place and socioeconomic realities all become material. As in, they become something to be observed, something to be understood, involved in some part of the art making process and ideally included with care and critique hand in hand. I'm resistant to saying that collaboration is part of it, but in many cases it is and some perhaps not. These projects are often chaotic and complex because they happen in real time and include people who can't be worked like a brush. 
And socially engaged art is also distinct from the provision of social services, like the one I volunteer for, for perhaps the aesthetic considerations where it's situated physically, situating itself within a particular sort of social, political, cultural reality, and the history combined with a kind of perspective of artists, curators, designers, rather than social workers. So perhaps if the empowerment model is applied to the arts, it would look something like this. Actively listening to what communities want, asking questions that don't just direct people towards what the artist wants to make with them, encouraging, facilitating, holding space for personal or collective reflection and realisation, creating the outside of possibility where making, experimentation and criticism are displayed outside, and also challenging the myths around what people can and can't do, placed onto them in the continual process of marginalisation. Marginalisation is a process of pushing people further and further away where dreams are strictly prohibited, but we know that deep dreams are made from the margins in secret and revealed in doorways. But is that it? Are we simply a counter, a lulling, a kiss to the project of disempowerment? to an environment of growing precarity and the removal of safety nets. How did they get pulled from under us? Suspicion. Don't you know who I am? Atomization of people in the country. When did islands turn to rocks, turn to dust? Technology, the abusive carer. Would there be another way? Lack of free time, leisure time, time. Who said time? Production cushioned by outsourced waste heaps. Are you done? Busying fatigue. Am I too fast for you? Minced into an exponential pipe. By whose hand? So perhaps it's something like a counter-project to disempowerment in the immediate moment, like right now. Or in the spirit of artist Maria Galindo, the project of disempowerment has hands that push it that is where the workshop, the art projects, the institutional rigour can also position itself. A workshop for the disempowerment of the powerful. Perhaps we can be a kiss and more. We could be a scream in the centre of a bank, like the scream of another Maria, the Maria and Sarah Maldora's Sambazanga. An institutional critique in and beyond the arts, turn a light so bright away from the margins and onto the eyes of the centre. We, being those who aspire for ourselves and others, people that make up communities to feel that we have the power to affect and do change in our lives and the lives of others, that change to whatever scale is possible. Are we imagining what is not here with strong lines and vivid colours, being your own worker, agent and boss, or wanting never to work without consequence, believing that what you don't see is worth seeing, going beyond, below, around and underneath the vision, taking gut for truth, not danger. Yes, there is fear, but it's left last like a dessert. 
Like when Toni Morrison says, I think I began because I really wanted to read that book. I wanted to read a certain book that I couldn't find. To me, the we isn't confined to artists, curators, designers and so on, whose work is concerned with doing, reflecting on or critiquing the socially engaged social arts, community arts and so on. The we is for us all to believe in the possibility of something else, something other than here. Of course, all these possibilities won't be the same. But I want to imagine what if we were to all believe in the possibility of something else, undefined, unstable and contradictory. Otherwise, the danger is our reality, segregating those who do and those who don't and present the option to be content with where we are or romanticising where we have been. Art is a way of doing that work. And then my pen moves to a spot tender to attention. What we mean by community. With boxes, suitcases and various bags still unpacked from the intentional community housing project I've just left, the word community is a difficult one to define. Because the shattering of an older definition I held is the reason for me leaving. And the reflection, revival or reinvention of the notion of community is something I'm working on. I will say... The place that held the definition is tender also to touch. Tender because I needed it to work, willed it, loved it, and it didn't. And this is part of my notion of community, I suppose. Both the rebuilding of broken ties and knowing that we can leave, as Bell Hooks says, when love is no longer on the table. Part of the falling from the housing community I lived in was due to the abandoning of myself in the context of the community, so invested in trying to slot into a space undetected, a sea at first glance, that isn't the sea, but an illusion of the sea, held in front of the singular, holding it up with its strong hand. The same hand that does the pulling up and out, no doubt. The closer I walked towards the illusion, the more I became folded over by it, pulling vertebra out, and wrung into confusion or disavowed by it. It was damaging for me and for the collective project, lulling into the visions of the most vocal, most manipulative, most persuasive, most confident, most articulate, most forthright, most loud, most self-justifiable. The point where power is amassed, which could be me, could be you. With everyone's silences, the apex jumps up, twirls, then dives and diffuses over the silence like a hero. Oh, so there's power there too. I've been reading Catching Hell and Doing Well by Adele D. Jones and Diana Watt, and its significance feels like vertebra. This text is an exploration of the Abyssindi Cooperative in Mossside, Manchester, formerly the Black Women's Cooperative, whose activities spanned the arts, political action, sisterhood, black cultural programmes and educational activities for children and adults in the community. Owning the notion we are responsible and accountable for where we live, the we being us all. This community made up of black women refused to be what was left for them to be or do. The sediment of dreams, that they would not watch, make tastelessness happen, slowly drop and be discarded what was physically and metaphorically not available to them, filtered or lost on its way, they made in full for themselves and each other, whilst demanding it for and from we. 
It seems that their activities were both what they did and who they wanted to be. It seems like they were clarifying to themselves the ways that they hoped to relate to each other and imagine that now as an exercise of visioning but also acting in one. Art is dependent on action and reflection in the same moment, not simply an expression of it. It seems also to be, perhaps I'm romanticising, that it existed not just because they were a group of black women, but because they trusted and believed that they were a community and that whatever did not exist could be realised. In the moment that I became detached from the community that I lived in, I did not believe that there was a community at all. I could not reconcile the other people with some notion of possibility, some part of myself or some future. Fernando Biri, Argentinian filmmaker and theorist, famously stated, the utopia lies at the horizon. When I draw nearer by two steps, it retreats two steps. If I proceed ten steps forward, it swiftly slips ten steps ahead. No matter how far I go, I can never reach it. What then is the purpose of utopia? It is to cause us to advance. But do we know utopia as our next word? Trusting that it's prepped in our minds or no? Where is the journeying, the nearing, the walking to? If there's no journeying, then perhaps we don't look for our keys to leave the house. We never step outside or step inside having been outside. Never take the turn onto an unknown road that turns stream, field, home. Tired flutes with new lives having passed through ours. And what if we don't journey out, out? Then we stay in and curtain twitch the world through a scratch of window. Only when loud sounds pound the street do we stretch the curtain to see the world. So we come to know it for its climbing of our heartbeat and the tremor of the ground. Mm. But 
the thing is, when I started walking in with all this paint and all this like crazy activities for children that, you know, and then all these crazy ideas that, oh, why don't we just uh, do a mural on the, on the, on the fence? Mm. And at first I thought that it's only sort of like a one shot deal, you know, that, you know, my students and myself are having fun, you know, oh, you know, working, you know, with the refugees. But then, you know, it's, it's something started, miracle, I would say, started to happen inside the camp once we finished the murals. Evelina said, be like water. The uh, violence behaviour or the depression behaviour started to change. And then the police department called me and said, Evelina, can you come back with your students again and do more artwork? Mm. And I said, uh, why? What, what happened? And they said that because of your artwork, because of the mirrors, of the color and also the scenery of like Vietnam, that, you know, the people started to gather around the fences and and talk and started to like as if they are back home in Vietnam sitting under the tree and start chatting with each other and then there will be less that there's like less fighting and mm. less argument and so it's at that moment I suddenly realized that wow this is what art can do very simple maybe just a, a big banyan tree on on the fences and then it will give like uh, the people that are being detained seems to have some kind of a peacefulness or maybe some kind of a dream that they can imagine that they one day they will be at home or back to a place where they can sit and talk mm. peacefully. And that's how it started like me to start to think about art therapy. Before that, I know nothing about that. And it was that moment that I suddenly realized that art is more powerful than just a piece of artwork in the museum or in the gallery. It's a piece of artwork that can bring hope. And it's a, it's, art is something that can bring people's imagination or dream to go further outside of what their own situation is. And this is how I start my therapeutic art program. Mm. 35 years ago. Evelina said, be like water, which I took as be flexible, be malleable, be moving, but in that be changeable, sometimes rippling to the edge of yourself. Be like water. And in the same way that she had highlighted her path into things, here's mine. I'm going to try to show you the horizons I've seen, the arrival, the failing, the fall, and the... Horizon. What gives me the authority to speak on this? My honesty, thought, my experience? Am I compromised from the beginning? And thoughtful? I've been paid to critique an organisation. I have my integrity, but it's wavered by... Focus E15 comes to mind. A group of young mothers based in the London borough of Newham fought their eviction from a homelessness hostel and continue to fight for housing justice, most recently campaigning against the ways in which small, inadequate housing is being offered to mothers with children and people generally in the pandemic by local councils, the making social distancing and safety people unbearable and the communities they make possible. 
evading the idea of struggle or hardship existing there, and most related to this podcast. I often interpret that Englishness and rural England, I'm aware of my oversight in stating all this crap, is not for me. It's simply background noise. I have no claim to this nation. Noise. Let it play, though. I'm going to try to show you the horizons I've seen, the arrival, the failing, the fall, and the horizon again. As a teenager, I was part of a group of perhaps 10 others from my college in Colchester that raised money for an organisation called the Russ Foundation, based in India, whose work at the time involved running a clinic, orphanage and school. I organised a fashion show to raise the money where designers, makeup artists, stylists and musicians from different parts of Essex all contributed to the event. Months later, we were in India teaching English, running workshops, helping in the fields, cooking, cleaning and learning from the various projects. What the Russ Foundation were able to do in the community was incredible. But in the years that followed, I've wanted to be very critical and even distance myself from my involvement specifically in the project. Although perhaps well-intentioned, there was no mutuality on our part, no seeing each other. We were the guests who had raised the money, it felt like. At the time, I wasn't aware of the word, but now this trip could be called something like volunteerism. Although not in the realm of socially engaged art, this was the first experience that encouraged me to reflect on what it was that I was committed to doing or trying to do. Frame this now through the lens of what we really mean by empowerment. What perhaps we're not talking about is power. And what we're not talking about is how what we do either invites change or it is somewhere other than here, a prefigurative politic, which is why the word empowerment can be icky. We can use it without interrogating power and or change. Augusto Bau, theatre maker and originator of Theatre of the Oppressed, spoke of rehearsal of revolution, which the dynamic between us and the people or projects we visited in India alone would cement that we were far from a rehearsal of any kind of revolution or any radical change at that, closer to Western saviorism stagnant in a triumphant position. In my understanding of saviorism, there is the belief that the saviour has something to bring that will change the lives of the saved, who, without the help, would be destitute, bored, bad and uninspired. I now pronounce you saviour and saved, stay together forever and don't look back. Did the black women of Avicindi Cooperative think of themselves as destitute, bored, bad and uninspired people who needed saving by some external force? I doubt it. Perhaps destitution was the media's banner for their homes. Bored racists with nothing new to say. Bad, bad, bad children, they said, but the problem was not the child, but the school, and uninspired leaders, still mm, leading. Their experiences were shared, and a desire to combat those ills was also shared. How that would happen was probably the centre of a load of conversations. And at some point, the Coniston Institute and Grisdale had a shared vision too. 
the revival of their building. But it seems that those visions have strayed. Charity mentality, power pocketed in one go, bone tremor, money bumped me up. As a teenager on a walk to or from college to take the bus home, I saw a few people painting letters outside a building in transit. The building and the project was called The Waiting Room, an old bus station waiting area for drivers, if I remember correctly. Ironically, it sat next to its opposite in many ways. First sight, a huge swirly art gallery, the kind that's always hollow, cold, and is over itself. The waiting room had been neglected for some time, ready for its demolition and some flats to be plonked on top that could be marketed as being in the well-known suburb of London called Essex. Before then, a group of artists, curators, designers and arts educators got a group of volunteers together and began the renovation. In the year or so that I volunteered there, the space included a kitchen, bar, social performance area and one of the toilets was transformed into a kind of recording studio the other into a maker's space, wood workshop. I volunteered on the bar, writing blog posts and helping out people running events, and going to loads too, running for the last bus home on several occasions. I called this project a kind of village magnet in my reflections. I was there in the first year of the project, and even then the place was often lively with different people, events and conversations. Mark Diath, co-founder of the project, said the intention had been for a 12-month pop-up style project to test the viability of a do-it-yourself style events venue, providing affordable open access to a workshop and tools for local makers and artists. Looking back three years later, we couldn't have predicted how popular it would become. Unfortunately, the project closed 2016. The thick thread through it being an emphasis on the bottom-up, the self-organised and a disruption of supposed economic certainties, like our good friend gentrification. It was the first time for several first times there, physically positioned on the outskirts of the outside. I worked there on the bar for no pay, whilst working also in a posh restaurant for low pay, and I felt what pay could not do. I could write about the events we wanted in the way that we wanted, organise what we wanted to do and do as we wanted there. When something needed fixing, we did it. Again, perhaps I'm romanticising. Is there a pretty picture from earlier years? Pretty picture of politicisation on the precipice? Perhaps it is a pretty picture, but it's not just that. It was the first time that I was both the recipient of the benefits of a project and sharing the responsibility of the creation of the benefits for myself and for others. I was yet to be politicised, but neatly on the precipice and chest wide open. To be the one to receive and to gift, not just to yourself, but to others in the same moment. This is really key. To me, it is the undoing of the paradigm whereby I'm the one to be giving and deprived, like my low-wage, posh restaurant job. Or like those projects where, insert big institution, insert big self-concerned artist, insert themes of migration, otherness, lostness or something else, 
Insert poorest, darkest, foreign-sounding, saddest group here. Insert big, big exhibition in big, big institution with a deep absence of the names. Acknowledgement of collaboration, arrogance and heroism rife. And finally, insert, did they get their work or is it yours for life? Anyway, you know the answer. I'm thinking about exhibitions like Alice Kettle's show at the Whitworth, ironically entitled Threadbearing Witness, where at a minimum, the names of those who partook in the project could have been listed on the Whitworth's website, or this addressed in the work. And so this thread, like many others, actually fails to bear witness to community as process, as a thing we do, from spectators to movers, from subjects onto which change happens, into performers, actors, critics, facilitators of something other than this, rehearsal of revolution, rather than asking it to arrive with sweet words, practising a life that does not know ours so that we can live in a place that is currently unimaginable. And it's urgent. Where there is no urgency for the rehearsal of something else, we just keep living the now. Part of what artists do is to make it urgent for everyone, not just for those that we believe there is a sense of urgency for change for, but also those that we don't. And to realise that the boundaries between these are unstable, chaotic and complex. I don't mean urgency as panic-inducing, crisis and fear-spinning type of stuff, but more that art can be the propeller in us all saying, you know what, this isn't it. Like noticing a secret door, picturing your body squeezing through a gap behind, and then stretch out your hand and opening it in real time. Urgency that is not catalyzed by a shock event and media deluge that follows, but urgency cultivated through a sensitivity to what is happening daily. I keep my distance from the notion that sensitivity is reserved for simply the artist way, way up there, far, far away. It's for us all. Sensitivity as this awareness, creative response to complicated days, perception, rethinking of our own beliefs and thoughts, noticing order and chaos without moral judgments, perhaps. As Maria Galindo has said, go against the tide by taking the floor and demanding not empowerment, but the disempowerment of bankers, judges, police, priests, doctors, psychiatrists, teachers and others. In the face of power you do not empower yourself, you rebel. That is the only way to destructure any power relationships. Um, as a result of that altercation, she shouldn't have been. 
people who work on mental health, you should, somebody should have looked into our case a little bit better than that. But, but from, even, from, you mentioned David Cameron, but he, d he did actually even say yesterday that the... So let's replace empowerment of those on the margin with disempowerment of those at the centre and create a sense of urgency around this. At the time of my involvement in the waiting room, I was on the precipice of, of politicisation, which is a ripe space. And if I could have had a chat with myself at the time, I probably would have asked questions like, how is this place really run, Samra? And why don't you know how? Where wasn't there transparency or openness? How had the project been funded? Which artists come in to use the workshop and who doesn't? Do you need to be an artist to use it? I hope to see the dispersal of power like a hot potato that gets thrown into the compost to become matter, then used to grow a forest of flowers, trees, fruit, veg, herbs for all to tend to and benefit from in the same moment. Borrowing from these notions of fugitivity by Tina Kampt and the undercommons by Fred Moten and Stefano Hani, a forest from which we can choose not to eat, where there had been no forest before. The logic continues. We, we all know that subversion from within an institution, even when done quietly, can be uncomfortable and isolating. But when we're all doing the absolute most, doing what we can, perhaps still quietly, critiquing, reflecting, sharing. The institution is stretched out of itself, expanded, chaotic and confused, an uncontrollable, discordant mess. I used to organise in a group called Refugee Art Movement in Hong Kong, where we hosted a weekly art club and lunch for families who were seeking asylum and others that weren't. We hosted a monthly programme of films that explored themes that were topical in relation to structural racism, citizenship, the experience of asylum seekers globally, African cinema, 
and was always followed up by a discussion. And we also organised an arts festival that was primarily for the families that came to the weekly art club, but it was also for everyone, where artists from different backgrounds performed all over the city. Now, institutional racism was and is still impacting asylum seekers in Hong Kong deeply, and this was something guiding what we were doing. Let's call this kind of project Artist Service, art that attempts to correct, reimagine, shift what the state has done wrong while still demanding resources from the state, where they continuously fail to do so for those on the margins, with art as the central stuff, art as a vehicle for social change, and in it we would cruise on into the place that isn't here. The project evolves through conversations with the young people and their parents about what they wanted to do. For a while, I was critical of the project's dependence on the efforts of people who were transient. I'm wary of projects like this that aren't sustained when they provide something that is crucial to either the day-to-day or maybe the weekly routine of people who are attending. And I'm thinking mainly about the weekly art clubs that we organised. I think building into the project a way of working that renders the initiators of the project obsolete can do away with these concerns. Somehow, if the project depends on those that aren't in the community, then there's probably a problem when looked at through the lens of the idea I introduced earlier, receiving, tending to and gifting in the same moment. More recently, my criticism of this project in Hong Kong has been with something that I, I, I see here, something about under-resourced projects, overworked volunteers, accountable only to ourselves or themselves, trying to do what the state has failed. And the state has failed, not due to a lack of capacity, let's be honest, but due to negligence. But also the question of, like, can you neglect something that you never cared about? I mean, can you? What we hadn't quite worked out was how to point directly at the problem. The screenings allowed people to see how they were complicit or how they could make simple changes or give people a space to reflect. And this was perhaps edging towards shining that light. But I think where I'm at at the moment is I'm trying to nurture collectives. Collectives with similar struggles or not, similar joys or not. Collectives of people I've never met and people I've known my whole life. Collectives for cooking together and eating together. Collectives for collectivizing wealth and collectives to make films and watch them. Collectives without bounds or reason. I want to be part of flat structures where I learn and fail and learn and fail and learn. I'm also trying to exist within institutions, positioning myself within, say, an art gallery, for example, or within local waste management as a way to learn how they work, forming collectives within these spaces where we can all learn how these spaces work and expose how they don't. Maybe what we mean is staring structures in the face as a process of dismantling the saviour and the saved dynamic. Remembering the hot potato analogy that I feel like I've made up, but also 
might have pinched from somewhere else. So if anyone knows, I'll credit them. But anyway, something about being actors in the rehearsal of new possibilities and making it urgent for us all and disempowerment of those in power. I think that's what we mean. I also want to propose something before we go. I'm thinking about the art world as witness to socially engaged work as a way to deliver value into the project, which then translates into capital to keep the project going. As in cultural value created through showing work at biennales, exhibitions, art magazines and so on, translates into cash for projects. What makes the art eyes look? Something with aesthetic value, something transformative, exotic, critical, confrontational, arrogant, I don't know. But what if those exhibitions were just one of many, the most crucial of which happened in the community as a way to really look at the dynamics present and see new avenues? I suppose these podcasts act as an example of that for Grisdale and myself, but also exhibitions within institutions made through the process of disempowering them. So what is usually unseen or neatly folded away is seen by all, for different perspectives to dive in and the unpicking of it as a collective process, embodying change, so the community can flow. Evelina said, be like water, Samra. Be like water. So that's it. I'm Sarah Mayanja, and this has been What Do We Really Mean by Community Empowerment. Big thanks to Richard Hamilton Harris for the tunes, Maria Benjamin and Evelina Liang for chatting, and Grisdale Arts. Also, 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 side note, this is a short podcast that literally took me forever to do because I care about these things deeply. And I could go on and on and on, but shout me if you want to hear more from me about anything that I've been speaking about or perhaps if you want some more information on something. I've made a list of all the different links and books and things that I read in the process of making this, so make sure you have a look at that if you're interested in what I've been speaking about. Thanks for listening. Much love. Bye. I'd like to thank everybody who's been involved in these podcasts, the immense amount of work that they've put into them. We're interested to hear your responses and your feedback. We are in the process of trying to develop a new institution, a new organisation, and we are looking for a very broad range of response to that, what that would look like, how that would operate. All the questions that have come up in these podcasts, we haven't come to an answer we're probably a long way from it. We need your help.